Susu Elvis from the blog Stories of an Unschooling Family. Welcome to my podcast. This is episode 26 and today I thought I'd talk a little bit about testing, uh, homeschool registration and can we force kids to learn? Leading on from that will be can we force kids to eat? I think there is um, some similarities in both situations. Now, if you listen to my last podcast, which was two weeks ago, you'll know that my girls need to be re-registered as homeschoolers. Our two years of registration um, are just about finished. We're almost there. End of May, we're registered up till. And I filled in the papers and sent them off asking for um, my children to be re-registered as homeschoolers for another period, which we're hoping will be another two years. Anyway, I sent off the forms and they came back, or a letter came back saying that they'd been received. And then uh, the day before yesterday, we had a phone call from our authorized person. Uh, this is the person that will come out and visit us. And she's coming out next week. She's coming out to talk to the girls, to have a look at what they've been doing in the last two years, and to see what we have planned for the next two years. So what if, what preparations have I made for that visit? I actually haven't made many at all. I just made sure that my Evernote records are up to date, which they usually are at the end of every day. This system of using Evernote is something new to what we've been doing previously for previous uh, homeschool visits. The last time our AP came out to see us, I was recording everything in an old exercise book, just scrolling down notes. And then before she came for her visit, I would organize those scrawled notes into a typed document so that were easy for her to see what the girls had been doing and the progress they'd made and had a bit of a plan for usually one term's work for, for the next uh, homeschool registration period. And that's the way we've been, we've, I've done it for a number of years. But I discovered Evernote last year and so I've been using Evernote to record everything and it's been a really good system and I'm hoping that my AP will agree with that. I'm hoping that she will look at my notes and say, oh wow, this is a really good system. Yeah, I really like what you've been doing and I can see that your girls are learning and you're fulfilling all the homeschool requirements and no problem at all. I will give you another two years. Well, that's what I'm hoping. And I feel pretty confident. I think that this is a good system, but I'm going to report back after she's uh, come and seen us and had a look at our notes, which are all on computer. For the very first time, I'm not going to print out pages and pages of notes and uh, other documents for her to look at. I'm just going to set my computer on the table in front of her and open it up or Evernote notebooks and ask her to scroll through and have a look at them. I think they look all right. But, um, yes, so it's easy for, will be easy for her to see what the girls have been doing because I've recorded all their learning experiences as individual notes. I have a notebook for every week of the term and each week as they're doing things, I go to my computer and I write a note for whatever they're doing. For example, this morning I was reading a couple of books to the girls, so there's a note in there for each of those read aloud sessions. The girls were also crocheting, and so I have a photo of their pro projects they're working on, and I've inserted those into individual notes as well. Um, what else? Oh, we, we listened to a podcast this morning, and I want to tell you more about that in a little while. 
But yes, once we'd listened to the podcast, I inserted the link into a note and my AP can go and have a look and she can follow that link and have a look at exactly what we've been listening to if she wants to. So yes, our notebooks are full of links and photos, sentences I've jotted down about things that the girls have been doing. And there is a good record of what they've been doing over the last two years. So that covers what they've been doing. The progress, every now and then I do go into a particular notebook and I jot down what the girls have progressed on, mainly for her uh, benefit because I think that I keep all those progress notes quite well in my own head. I know where they're progressing and where they need help. But every now and then I think, well, it might be good to put this in words so that the AP can see that I'm thinking about this. Do they need any more help on... multiplication tables or whatever. I mean, I'm quite happy to leave that to my girls to work out in their own time, but it doesn't hurt to write down and saying things like Gemma Rose uh, is conquering her times tables. It looks good in the notes and it's quite true. She is finally (laughs) getting the times tables into her head, though I'm very, uh, yes, relaxed about the whole thing. But what are we going to do for the next two years? And we're unschooling, of course. I can't write down uh, week by week what we're going to be doing together, what the girls are going to be learning on their own. It just That's not the way unschooling works. So how do I get around that one? Well, in previous registration visits, I've presented what the girls have been doing. And I'm, I usually say, well, they're going to go on in the same manner and uh, learn in the same way for the next coming two-year period. And I just give a few examples of things that we might be doing in the next few weeks, and that's always been accepted. I make a list of resources that they possibly will be using, yeah, books and websites, kits, science kits, all that type of thing that they are possibly going to be uh, using in their learning. And this time it's been very, very easy because I have an Evernote unplanning notebook though in my notes I actually called it a planning notebook but it's an unplanning notebook and in that unplanning notebook I keep clipping things off the internet that the girls might be interested in websites uh, particular articles videos uh, books off Amazon that they might like to read all those types of things as well as sometimes I go around the house and I'll note things that we have in the house and I'll write those into an individual note and add them to the planning notebook and what happens is the girls if they want a fresh idea of something to do they'll go to my unplanning notebook and they'll scroll through looking for things that might interest them. And it really works out well. Charlotte in particular, who's uh, 17, she frequently goes to the planning notebook looking for ideas, scrolls through until she finds something that she would like to do. I've added all the things like the art courses that I've bought for the girls. And as they're scrolling through, she thinks to herself, I'm sure, "Um, oh yes, the art course, I forgot about that. Yeah, I might go and do a lesson out of that. So that's working very, very well. And sometimes I also scroll through it and might suggest to the girls, oh, look, I put this book in the planning notebook a while ago. Do you think that I should um, go and buy a copy and we could read it together? And they usually say, oh, yeah, that sounds great, Mum, we'll do that. And then I can copy those notes from the planning notebook into the individual weekly notebooks that, that we're currently using. 
so that's working out well and I hope my AP likes that idea because I just I, there's over 200 notes in there I just direct it to that and say look these are the resources that we'll be using in the next two year period websites books uh, science kits videos we're going to be dipping into this notebook as my girls are, are learning in the next coming registration period so yeah I hope that goes well I'm really grateful for as far as homeschool registration visits go is that it's only a visit and uh, our AP will look at what the girls have been doing and what we plan to do but they, she won't test them. We don't have to prove that they know particular things and those things are in their heads so that when they're tested uh, they're going to come out with a good score. I'm really grateful for that because of course, if they're tested, they'll be tested on particular things, which means that the girls have to learn particular things. I mean, it might seem also that we do have to learn particular things because we're supposed to be following the school curriculum. But uh, individual, you can learn about a particular subject and satisfy uh, the homeschool, you know, the education department without learning particular facts about that subject. Uh, yes, we don't have to study it as if we were studying it out of a textbook with uh, study guide questions at the end. And I'm very, very grateful for that. And I think about testing. Is testing uh, useful? Is it a good way to record a children's progress? Does it really show that our children are learning? And I don't think it does. I don't like the idea of testing at all. I think that it's yeah, it's not a good way of proving that our children are learning and progressing. The, the experience that brings this home to me most is my experience at university. I did a Bachelor of Science um, majoring in botany and minoring in biochemistry. And I can remember before my final exams, I got all my notes out and I sat there cramming them all into my head using various different ways of making those notes uh, uh, memorable. All I had to do was remember them for the period of the exam. So if it was a week before the exam, all I had to do was make sure I knew all those facts and figures for another week. And I had various methods of doing that, visualizing things, connecting things together, even just keep turning over the page and looking and trying to like photograph the the page in my memory and when the exam was over I did pass my exams I got my degree and when I finished the exams I just let all that information just seep out of my brain I'd done the work I'd got what I wanted which was a pass in the exam I was no longer interested it just I just let it go it wasn't useful it was useful as far as getting the degree and once I'd attained that, um, yeah, I, I no longer held on to that knowledge. It wasn't part of me. And it wasn't, I, was, I wasn't even interested in it, really. I wasn't passionate about the subject. I just knew enough to get through it all. The week after the exams, when I was cleaning up all my paperwork and going home and preparing to get married, move on to the next stage of my life, I looked at all my notes that I'd accumulated over the past three years things that should have been important to me and I just threw the whole lot in the bin. I didn't even think about it. I finished with this, it's all over and done with and I threw it in the bin. And I think what a waste. 
Um, how many other people have that attitude about learning? Once you have gained your goal, yeah, that, that, that was it. The, the, the notes didn't make, didn't have any value for me anymore into the bin. Maybe it'd been different if I'd been passionate about my subject, but that was another problem with going through the school system. I didn't have a chance to find out what I was passionate about and sort of was pushed into an area that um, other people thought might be valuable and I might be good at, but which I had no real interest in. I think down the track a bit, if I had gone on and worked as a botanist, maybe all that information, if I'd been passionate about it, would have been useful and I would have kept it because I would have needed that knowledge. I never actually did work in botany. I worked in a veterinary physiology department of a university and I used some of my biochemistry, but I never used my botany. And I don't think I know a lot of botany these days. I can't keep plants alive. I've got a vague understanding of things all those chemical uh, equations and pathways to show how synthesis uh, works, photosynthesis works, or various other things like that. Oh, I could never re replicate that these days. I have a degree. It says that I have a Bachelor of Science. I can tell everybody I'm a scientist. It looks very impressive. I've got this lovely bit of paper. Again, I worked in a university, but I have not much knowledge in my head. It sounds more impressive than it actually is. It's not real learning. Now I learnt because I wanted to pass an exam. So testing does that. I, and, but was it real learning? I don't think it was because I let it all go as soon as I didn't need, need it anymore. And I think a lot of what we think of as learning for children is exactly that. It's learning which is mo motivated by the wrong reasons, so it's not real learning. For example, oh, school kids, I mean, they get tested all the time, and so they cram facts into their heads so they'll get a good pass in the exam, either for so that they'll look good at school, get, get in the top of the class, or their parents might be happy, they'll, you know, that type of competition at school, or they'll be shamed into learning it because they won't want to face the consequences of getting a poor mark, or they'll be bribed into it, or maybe punished into learning. Uh, there's various different ways that kids can appear to be learning, um, but I don't think it's real learning at all. I think the only way to for real learning to occur is when we are really passionate or interested in the subject or we actually need the knowledge. Now there are certain things uh, that uh, we are supposed to teach our children or in a case of unschooling our children are supposed to learn to satisfy the homeschool registration process. We've got to give evidence that our children are learning certain things. This is in the state of New South Wales, Australia. Never used to be like this, but it's quite strict at the moment. And if our children aren't interested in the learning or they have no need for it, how are we ever going to prove that uh, we are fulfilling the requirements? Do we resort to bribes? or shame, or make them cram stuff into their heads to show that they've done it, or just say to them, you must learn this because you have to. 
because if we want to homeschool, you have to satisfy these requirements or reasons which will result in the learning not really belonging to the child. I've been thinking about this and uh, talking about it with my husband, who is who is a school teacher, because he faces similar things at school. And the, the point is, I think, is that we can't force children to learn anything if they don't want to learn it. And once one of my children, Gemma Rose, she's 11 now, but it might have been maybe a couple of years ago when she was nine, maybe, she came to me one day and she said, Mom, you can't make me learn anything. And she wasn't being defiant. She didn't say it to me in an attitude of, you know, I'm not going to do this. There's nothing you can do about it. She'd just been thinking about it, and she just came out with that thought. And I said, thought to her, yeah, she's right. I can't make her learn anything. It was really, she was very insightful, gave me something to think about. And I think, why do we think that we can teach children, or we can make children learn? Because we can't. All we can do is present them with opportunities for learning, and if they refused to uh, pick up on those opportunities, if it doesn't interest them, if they see no need for it, if there's no uh, bribes and rewards and uh, punishments which are going to make them learn it, then we can't do anything about it. And I was talking to my husband, Andy, about this. What does he do at school? And he agrees with me. He says children can sit in, in a classroom at school and can refuse to participate, refuse to get involved, refuse to learn anything. They can just sit there and say, well, you know, I'm not going to do anything. You can't make me. And we can't. And so he says the only way he can get around it is by trying to make his work engaging, to make it interesting for the children, to involve them so they want to be in his class and want to learn so that they can see that learning is a, a, a valuable experience, that it's something enjoyable. Give them a love of learning. I think it's what we can do at home as well. We can show them that we like learning, that we love um, yeah, finding out new things and we want to share it with them. But as far as saying you have to learn this, I don't think we can do that. So, yeah, there's a lot of work involved in, I think, unschooling, a lot of work where a parent has to be interested in learning herself and passing on that enthusiasm and example to her children because it is a big fascinating world out there. And I think it's very sad when children don't think that it is worth learning about. thinking about how we can't force children to learn, that led to another thought, we can't force children to eat. And it took me a long, long time to work this one out. Uh, yeah, I can remember in the early days of motherhood, when I've made delicious food, what I thought was delicious food for my children, spending a lot of time over it, doing it with love, making sure it was nutritious, things that I would like to eat, presenting it to them nicely, making them, you know, not making them, but yeah, sitting at the table with them. And yeah, the making part comes next, making them eat it. When they look at it and turn their nose up and say, oh, I don't like that. And then I would say, what's wrong with it? I spend a lot of time making that for you. It's delicious. I like it. And then a battle would ensue uh, between me and my children. Yeah, then, then I found myself saying and doing all kinds of ridiculous things, like you'll sit there until your plate is empty. Um, if you don't eat it, it'll still be there the next meal. Or 
very silly things. Think of all the starving children in the world. You should appreciate your food. Now eat it. Then I, I wasn't against bribing either. You'll get no dessert until you have finished what's on your plate. And then I moved on to other, and other tactics, which I thought were a, a little bit better. You have to be considerate. You know, what if we go places and we're present, you're given food that you don't like? You better get used to eating whatever is on your plate because it'd be very rude of you not to eat it when we're at somebody else's house. They'll have gone to a lot of trouble and you will be, um, yeah, being inconsiderate if you don't eat it. What I think I was more concerned about was how it look. Uh, I wouldn't be a good mother because I had brought up children who were fussy in their eating habits. Yes, couldn't I have done a better job making my children uh, considerate? Uh, more concerned about my own reputation, I think, than that of my children. How would I deal with it if they didn't eat what was put on their plates? Anyway, none of these tactics ever worked, and I got hot and bothered. I used to jump up and down, and, oh, I think back and think of all the horrible meal times we had when I tried to force my children to eat. A few times they actually had, I got them to the stage of putting food in their mouths and then they gagged and uh yeah, I, I imagine a lot of mothers might know what I'm describing. Well, I hope so because I hope I'm not the only mother that has ever gone down that pathway. And as the years went by, I either, some people might say, gave up and got lazy about the whole aspect of training my children to eat well, or I got uh, more sensible and I started to respect my children a bit more. We do all have our individual tastes. What tastes good to me doesn't necessarily taste good to my children. I had to accept that. When I'm hungry, it doesn't necessarily mean my children are hungry, or they might only be hungry for a certain amount. I don't know how much food they need on their plate. If they don't eat all their meal, it doesn't mean that they don't love me, that they don't appreciate all the time I've spent in the kitchen cooking that meal for them. They are quite within their rights to put down their fork and say, I've had enough. I think the emotions that go with uh, forcing children to eat for meal times uh, can be very hard to deal with sometimes. Meal times are supposed to be happy times, times when we get together with our children and we chat, uh, catch up from the, whatever we've been doing during the day, enjoy our food. It's supposed to be a happy time, and I've had so many times when it's just been a battleground that I'm not willing to go through that anymore. I gave that away quite a long time ago, and I'm glad. Yep, we can't force our children to eat, even if we think we can. Well, that's what I believe anyway. Do I have fussy eaters in the family, or do they all learn to eat um, eventually what the family is eating. I have to admit that I have one fussy eater out of the lot. Uh, Gemma Rose, who's 11, still won't eat many of the things that the rest of the family will eat. And I did think that she would grow out of this uh, fussiness, if you want to call it that. She won't eat certain things like curry. Not very a big meat, meat eater at all. Anything that's too complicated as far as ingredients go, spice, too many ingredients in a meal, she will refuse to eat. Uh, yeah, she likes her meals simple, which is pretty good because she'll be quite happy to eat rice if we're having curry. She'll be quite happy to have the bowl of rice. If I add some nuts on the top and a bit of cheese, 
sprinkle some other things in, that that will satisfy her. So in that way, she's a very simple eater. And that's what we've learned to do, is to accommodate everybody's uh, individual tastes. Some nights of the week, we make Gemma Rose's favorite meals, which are things like pasta. She likes um, macaroni cheese, very simple things. Other nights of the week, well, we will have a curry because this, we other people in the family do like curry. And she'll just have the rice part. Other times, uh, we might just scramble her a couple of eggs, do something which is very simple. So we don't go, I won't cook a different meal for every child. I think that our children are very considerate with, within the limits of their tastes. Gemma Rose doesn't expect me to cook her a separate meal. She'll just accommodate herself to the bits of the meal that she likes and she'll even go looking for a bit of cheese and she can scramble herself a couple of eggs if she wants to. Uh, it's no, not really a bother. I talk about I cook, um, I cook Gemma Rose this or I cook that or I cook a curry. I don't really cook at all. What I mean is Imogen cooks. Imogen's my 20-year-old daughter and she cooks most of the family meals. She, she likes cooking. Sometimes the other girls will take a turn but yeah she just volunteered to cook the family meals and I'm not that really bothered about cooking. It's not one of my passions. I've cooked in the past because a mother has to cook and provide food for her family. I've had help from all the girls at various stages. Everybody has wanted to be involved with cooking. But Imogen enjoy, really does enjoy cooking, so she's taken that task on for the rest of the family. So she'll cook after consultation with everybody else. We'll decide on a meal for the day, and she'll be quite happy to cook that for us. And at the weekends or in the holidays, my husband Andy, he takes his turn at cooking because cooking is one of his passions. And he's the one that actually taught our children to cook. They've spent a lot of uh, happy hours in the kitchen together. All he has to shout out is, who wants to help me cook dinner? And someone will come flying along and say, I'll help dad. And I think he makes cooking fun. He shares his passion. He tells stories as he's cooking. And the kids and Andy have a great time in the kitchen. I might go in the kitchen and do a few dishes for them, but I'm quite happy to pass all the cooking on to them. And cooking has been a great thing for our family as binding the kids and Andy together and passing on skills. It is uh, something that they enjoy together. Now, Andy didn't always enjoy cooking because he didn't know that he liked cooking until Charlotte, who is now 17, but when she was a baby, so yeah, about six months old, so that's a long time ago, he broke his leg and he was on crutches for, I think, about seven weeks and he got bored. He was at home, he couldn't drive to work and he had a long time at home and one day he decided he would cook dinner for me. And he got a stool and perched himself on a stool and he got our eldest daughter, Felicity, and he said, would you like to help me? And she did all the running around the kitchen for him while he directed, perched on his stool. And yeah, for most of the time that he was off work, he cooked the meals. He just found one of the children to be his runner and they cooked together. And he decided that, yeah, he really liked cooking, so he's got a big cookbook collection. He has helped cater homeschool camps and parish activities. Uh, I've actually based a few of my children's stories around Andy. I've made him into a character into one of my books. So that has, um, using that experience has been good subject matter for my children's stories. 
uh, talking about my children's stories, I was thinking that I should actually make an ad for them. I got some revenue this morning. There was an email there from the publisher saying that I this is this month's revenue. So I opened it up and got excited. I think I can afford to take Andy out for a cup of coffee on Saturday. Now I've got a few dollars, not a many dollars, and it's not a, a huge bestseller, but it's... um. Yeah, I should do a bit more advertising, I think, and tell people about my book out there. And maybe I should write, well, say, write an ad. Maybe I should record an ad and put it somewhere in my podcast. And what gave me this idea was I was, the girls, younger girls and I were listening to a podcast this morning. It was one that we stumbled over the other day and we said, oh, look, uh, put that in the planning notebook and we'll listen to that next week. It's a, it was an Australian history podcast stuff you missed in history class and we think it's quite um not funny but unusual it's presented by two american ladies and they're talking about australian history so they're talking about things uh that are in our country with the wrong accent which it sounds a little bit strange but they're very good presenters and they found out a lot of good information information about the things they're talking about. And today we listened to an episode about the Emu Wars of 1932. Uh, it sounds, sounded intriguing, all these emus, and uh, I won't tell you the story about it because it will take too long, but we enjoyed it. And we listened to one last week about the rabbit-proof fences, which are all around Australia, kilometres and kilometres of them, which always makes us laugh because they, they weren't successful but they still maintain the rabbit-proof fences, which rather surprised us. But anyway, in the middle of the podcast today, there was an ad. They were sponsored by somebody or other, and they had an ad in the middle, which we had to listen to if we wanted to listen to the second half of the podcast, which was okay. It was only a short ad, and that's what made me think I should have an ad in the middle of my podcast saying, you know, I'll go to Amazon and uh, look up my book, Angels of Abbey Creek by Sue Alvis, a children's book, suitable age... 6 to 12, maybe. Um, yeah, I haven't got the wedding right, obviously, of course, but that gave me this idea. Well, I think I've come to the end of what I was going to say today. Oh, I didn't really have much idea of what I was going to say today. I said to the girls over at lunch, I think I'll record a podcast this afternoon. Uh, what shall I speak about and they said, well, what are you thinking about, Mum? And I said, well, I'm thinking about the registration visit next week. And so I just jotted down a few things that led from that. And I hope that that was um, interesting. So thank you so much for listening today. I had a couple of really lovely comments uh, in the last two-week period about my podcasts. They're not professional, and people recognize that. It, this is my unschooling project, learning about how to podcast on the go. So, of course, I make lots of mistakes. They're not professional at all, but I'm learning. And maybe one day when they are professional, I'll be able to give up the podcast and say, well, I conquered that one. But um, thank you for always putting up with my unprofessional presentation and all the things that go wrong in my podcasts. But yeah, I'm using my new mic again, so I'm hoping the sound quality will be okay. Imogen set me up before I began. We did a few tests. This sound a bit wrong at first, but I hope we got it right in the end. So uh, what else? Facebook page, if you'd like to join my Facebook community, it's at Sue Elvis Writes. Yes, I've tried to transfer, I'm trying to transfer some of my Sue Elvis Bright's blog over to my unschooling blog. I made a new header. If you'd like to go to my blog, Stories of an Unschooling Family, 
not only will there be some podcasts, uh, some podcasts, some uh, program notes for this podcast, which I'll do when I finish the, the podcast today. Uh, they'll also, you can also have a look at my header because I've stuck on the side a little, little picture and some words to link up my uh, Sue Other Sprites blog because I'm I'm going to have a go at posting everything on my unschooling blog and see how that goes. And if you look in the sidebar, you'll find extra buttons, which I will lead you to posts on all sorts of things that are on the other blog. So have a look at that if you're interested. Anything else? iTunes. I'm on iTunes. I'm also on Podbean if you'd like to follow or subscribe. And until next time, I'd just like to thank you for listening and say trust, respect and love unconditionally. Thank you.